Hi, psychology nerds, and welcome to Why We Get Mad, a special series brought to you by the Psychology and Stuff podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, author of the book Why We Get Mad, and I'm here with my friend Sammy Elder-Fieser. How's it going, Sammy? It is going great. And how about yourself, Ryan? I'm sick. I have a cold (laughs) in the summer. It's August 5th, and I have a cold, and I'm not happy about it, especially, so it's not COVID, because I had, um, I, I got tested, I'm vaccinated, but I got tested. It's not COVID. Um, but I'm also trying to figure out how I got a cold because I do not have contact with any human beings other than my immediate family. So I think we have developed a pretty sound theory on how that happened. So as you guys may recall, I've been doing summer school with five-year-olds and I got sick about two weeks ago. And then we had a very short meeting via zoom. And then you (laughs) fell deathly ill soon after. It's true. You gave me a virus, a computer virus that I got through Zoom, the Zoom virus. Yep. And uh, I think that's I'm not the only logical yeah. explanation. I'm so sorry. Yeah, I'm not happy about it. I'm really not because it's kind of, a, I mean, you know, it causes a little bit of anxiety too in the middle of an international health crisis to get a cold uh, because you start Naturally. to think. But also because I'm not sleeping super well and I like sleeping. So anyways, it's a bit of a bummer. I would say as a segue back into the show, I would say that I am indeed angry about it. Uh, but oh, no. yeah, so, and maybe I'm catastrophizing a little bit to, uh, to, to bring it into the question, our TikTok question of the week. You want to go ahead and ask it? Yes. So one of our TikTok followers asked, if I grew up with an angry schema and have adopted a negative pessimistic outlook, what tips do you have to help me change my worldview as an adult? Yeah, I I like this question a lot. And I, you know, there's a bunch of reasons why I like it. And I'm going to kind of come back to those as I as I tackle it. So, you know, the first thing I would say to this person is that they should be patient with themselves, because what they are trying to ask of themselves is really, really hard. They have spent a, a lifetime developing their habits, their thinking habits in this case, and trying to undo those or trying to change them is just going to take time. Um, we're used to doing things a certain way. You know, think about it as like, if you decided tomorrow, hey, I'm going to start tying my shoes differently, it wouldn't happen right away. It would take time to, to do that. It would take time and it would take effort and you would slip and it would take longer and it would be hard. And such as this. So just know that it's hard. One of the things I like about this question, though, is that there's something, you know, the fact that they're asking it really is, frankly, step one, which is to be intentional about it, you know, you, that you have to put effort into it, you have to say, I'm, I want to do this, it's important to me to do this, and I want to try and uh, think about things differently. And, and also, it, the, the, the question implies some ownership in the process that I'm responsible for my outlook on some level, I'm responsible for how I, even though, frankly, my outlook was probably, I'm probably not responsible for the origin of my outlook. That was probably done to me through child rearing and a bunch of other things, but I'm responsible for it now. And I need to think about how I might be able to change it. So here's the best that I can say as far as how, um, once you know that it takes time and once you know that you need to be intentional, is that I would encourage people to start by taking the time to reflect on things after the fact. 
it's really hard to catch ourselves in the moment, right? Because typically what happens is thing happens, we decide that thing is bad and upsetting and, and a problem and all that. And we, we act accordingly. And so in that moment, it's really hard to catch yourself because it's so automatic. It's so habitual. It's like trying to stop from startling uh, when someone makes a loud noise by you. That's just a hard thing to do. So instead of doing that, um, you know, try and reflect on it after the fact. Take time. As soon as you've kind of essentially calmed down enough that you can sort of think through these things, maybe that's the end of the day. Maybe that's right after. As soon as you can do that, and, and uh, a woman I've been talking to recently, uh, another uh, Dr. Kate Bellisteri, I think her name is, um, she's a, another TikTok creator and she's super, super brilliant. One of the things she said, as we were talking about it, a phrase she used is to find your pause. And um, what I like about that is, you know, when you can find that moment where you can pause and regroup for a little bit, you can kind of reflect back on okay, so how did these thoughts I had in this moment play into that angry schema? How did it, how did my, or how did my angry schema shape those thoughts? How did my pessimistic outlook shape those thoughts I had in those moments? And so you can take time to sort of back up and think through how you maybe wish you would have responded in that moment. If you keep doing that and keep taking those moments, that pause that Dr. Kate talked about, it's going to come earlier and earlier. It's, it's eventually you're going to get to a point where it's happening in the moment, where you're recognizing in the moment and catching yourself in the moment. So you can replay these sort of episodes in your head. You'll start to catch yourself a little bit sooner. The other thing I would say is that uh, be willing to fake positivity a little bit. And I don't mean in a, in an unhealthy way by any means. I mean, you know, Chances are, if, if you continue to, even if you're trying to work on this, if you continue to describe yourself to yourself as a negative, angry person, chances are you're going to continue to be a negative, angry person. That if you think about yourself that way, you're going to be that way. Um, and you're, you're going to have a harder time catching yourself. So on some level, I think you need to just at least, and when I say fake it, I mean, at least be willing to describe yourself to yourself as someone who is a happier person or someone who is a little more optimistic, that I think that's going to get you part of the way. So I'm not advocating that you shouldn't be authentic with yourself or with those around you, but that you should try and maybe showcase the side of you that is optimistic or at least trying to be um, and, and focus more on that. What do you think? I love all of that. I have one thing to add. When you were talking about finding your pause, and it made me think about a time in my life when I was trying to change a schema and how I would get so disheartened every time I would reflect and I would be frustrated with myself because finally I was becoming even more self-aware of all the times I was doing these things I didn't want to be doing, but that was progress and I couldn't change anything until I acknowledged those moments. And I think it's important to talk about that too, because I do feel like it's so easy to get down and on yourself and frustrated when you're paying attention to all those times that you're messing up. Yeah, no, gosh, that's such a good point. I'm so glad you brought that up because yeah, it's, that is progress. It, it doesn't feel like it again, because you're, you're noticing the, the errors, but it, it's, you know, and I put errors in quotes there, but it, it is, it is progress to be working on it because it does take time. It can't happen overnight, but, and so try and be aware of that, that you're, 
that you're making that progress, that you're working through that. That's super, super, super important. Exactly. Love it. Very good. Well, let's get into today's episode. So we have something a little different today. Now, in 2016, Esquire Magazine and NBC News did a survey on people's anger and a variety of other things. It's linked in the show notes. So if you want to see more, um, you, you can. And there's, a, there's a, a ton more details there. But basically, the NBC News slash SurveyMonkey slash Esquire online poll was conducted from November 20th to 24, 2015, among a national sample of 3,257 adults age 18 and over including a targeted sample of adults with an education level of high school or less. Data uh, data for this survey has been weighted for age, race, sex, education, region, evangelism, and religious affiliation to reflect the demographic composition of the United States. Okay, so that is obviously a quote from uh, the Esquire survey and from, and you can, like I said, you can see a lot more details and we'll link to it in the show notes, but I wanna get into a couple of different findings here. There's like three or four things that I think we really want to highlight as we, we talk. So, so I'm just going to preface things by saying, I think the survey is really cool. I, I kind of discovered it on accident. Um, but there's some really, really interesting data in here about how often people get mad, why people get mad, um, how they might react to some things, including some fictional things. Um, there's some really, really interesting stuff there, starting with one of their first questions, um, which is about the frequency of, of getting angry. So the, the question was um, essentially, how did they word it? It was about how often do you hear or read something in the news that makes you angry? And the responses were, were pretty interesting. So uh, 31% of people, so almost a third of Americans in the, who responded to the survey said a few times a day, that they're getting angry a few times a day. 37% said once a day, 20% said once a week, 5% said once a month, and 6% said rarely. So, okay, first of all, Sammy, where, where would you put yourself on that continuum? Are you a few times a day? Are you once a day? Are you once a week? I would be further down the spectrum towards once a month or rarely, and this is why, because I am, I have the thought process of you can read the news or you can be happy sort of thing. <laughs> so you ignore <laughs> which the is news. Not, which is not great. Obviously, I know I should be, I should educate myself more than I do, certainly. But at this point and during a pandemic for my own mental health, I have definitely taken a few steps back from the news because it was making me so angry, you know, and, and panicked all the time. So I've taken a step back. Where, where do you think you would fall? So it's funny you say that because the obvious confound here that you've you've identified is how often we're reading the news. And and I that is episodic for me. There are days where I just ignore that stuff. And there are days where I actually actively seek it out in in different. And so, um, you know, so yesterday I was on sort of a news binge where I was reading thing after thing after thing, including, you know, going and checking out the tweets of various legislators and things like that. And I, so yesterday the answer would have been many, many, many times over the course of the day, but you know, uh, over the weekend, I'll be out of town, uh, hanging out at my 
at my in-laws and I'm probably going to avoid uh, some of that stuff while on vacation. And so the number is going to be way less than that. So because you want to be happy, right? Yeah, I, I'm guessing if you averaged it all out, it would fall down to once a day, um, maybe a few times a day. Part of the problem for me is that maybe it's not something that I, well, I guess something you hear or read. I guess here, I get news all the time, whether I like it or not, from my spouse, from my mom, from people I work with that ends up frustrating me. And part of the reason they're telling me is because they know it'll make me mad, right? They're telling me something because they know it's, it, it's frustrating. Did you hear X did Y, you know, and right. stuff like that. I was intrigued by this though, because so part of what I thought was really interesting about this is I guess two things. One is um, I think about how this number likely has gone up since 2010, since 2000 you know, the year 2000, frankly, because social media, I mean, media, social and otherwise is very different now uh, than it once was. And I think that likely, you know, influences this number. Um, I call these opportunities to feel um, sometimes when I talk about them that social media provides us with these new opportunities to feel. And it's, and it's not just anger, it's other things too. But, you know, when I, if we go back 20 years ago, when I got up in the morning and I made my coffee and I sat there waiting for it to brew, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't scrolling through Facebook while I was waiting for it. I was just looking out my window or who knows what. Now I, I set my coffee to brew and then I sit, pick up my phone and I scroll through Facebook for five minutes and I, and I see and learn things that I would not have known 20 years ago. And some of it's good. Um, you know, it might be a friend who had a baby or it might be someone getting a new job or something like that. And some of it's sad. You know, it's a person who lost a loved one or who lost their job or something like that. And some of it's news or po- political beliefs or things like that that make me mad. And mm-hmm. that stuff all those are all new opportunities, things I didn't I didn't have access to before. And I don't know what the equivalent was back then. I don't know what I would have been doing to get that information the same way, maybe Christmas cards, you know, once a year, but um, it it wasn't the same. And so I think that there's just more of that than there used to be. Definitely. The times have definitely changed where people, they feel every second where you're not doing something with going on your phone, going on social media. What, what is the world up to right now? Yeah. And I, I think this connects, you know, as we think back, part of what I want, we wanted to do with the survey is to like connect back to some of the previous episodes. And I think about um, like the, the Cliff Ganyard episode about are we angrier now than we used to be or, or when Chris Smith was talking about women's anger. In some ways, this, um, this connects to those because, you know, I am, I am more aware now than I would have been 20 years ago about some of the issues that face uh, that face women, that face other marginalized groups. I just know those things better because of social media and because of sort of this kind of access. I can hear the perspectives of other people more often. And so I think that it does. I find myself angrier, and this is going to be a segue into some, some things we'll talk about later, but I find myself angrier on behalf of others more often than I used to be. Um, and I, and I think that's provided that opportunity is provided to me by social media in some way. 
Definitely. With the people you choose to follow on Twitter or Instagram, and then you actually see through their eyes, what are the experiences they're having? For, I mean, there's so many people that w- would read about this stuff in the news, but don't necessarily believe it because you don't see it with your own eyes. But now with social media, people actually record these events and you do get to see it with your own eyes. And that's so impactful. Well, and that's what, I mean, you know, I've heard many times and I believe this, that from, from uh, you know, when we talk about police brutality, I've heard many times people say, this is not new. This, the only part that is new is, is the fact that it's being recorded. And, exactly. you know, that's a really, and I think it's worth acknowledging. One of the thoughts I've often had is if, if these things are happening when people know they're being recorded, what must be happening when people think they're not being recorded? You know, what are, oh, God. And, and those are also, because many of the, the recordings, and I'm not just, just talking about Black Lives Matter, but I am talking about that, but many of the, the things we're talking about are not, uh, are, are happening when the, when the person doing the act knows that they are being recorded. Um, and so what must happen at other times? So let's, should we use this as a jumping off point to get to the empathy gap? Um, yeah. Which I think is really, really fascinating. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about that or to hear yeah. you talk about it. <laughs> so, yeah, let's um, basically um, there's there was this question and I got to hunt down because I want to make sure I say it the way they did. All right. So the question they asked is which groups have a right to be angry about the way they're treated? And you, you go down the list and there's, you know, evangelical Christians, 19 percent, Muslims, 34 percent, atheists, 16 percent, blacks, 47 percent, women, 42 percent, Hispanics, 37 percent, white men, 18 percent, LGBT individuals, 45 percent, none of the above, 26 percent. Right. So, OK, that's there's definitely like interesting stuff in there um, that I, I really find myself questioning in all sorts of ways. Um, but I think one of what's really interesting and what the, they point to is that later on, they ask the same people thinking about those same groups, which of them are treated in a way that makes you angry. And what they point out is that there's this disconnect between who we think should be angry and who we are angry on behalf of. And so they, they refer to this, and I love this phrase, I think this is super important, is they refer to this as the empathy gap. And so to, to quote this study, when we asked respondents to tell us which groups they felt had a right to be angry and which groups they themselves felt angry about, we notice a gap between the two percentages, an empathy gap. In the general population, the greatest empathy gap occurred when we asked people how they felt about the treatment of Blacks and Hispanics. There's a 6% point gap between the people who believe that Blacks and Hispanics are being wronged and those who are actually angry about it. In other words, basically, there's a whole group of people, 6%, and keep in mind, you know, 6% of a, of a national sample is a, is a big group of people. 6% of people are saying, yeah, Blacks have a right to be angry, but I am not angry on behalf of them. Like I am not angry for them. Or Hispanics have a right to be angry. They should be angry, but I am not angry for them. And so there's this, this absence of like real true empathy in those circumstances. How do you how do you justify that? Like how do you explain that where people 
they read something and they say, yes, that person should be mad, but they don't feel that way. They don't actually feel mad for them. What do you, what do you chalk that up to? How do you describe that? Yeah. I, I mean, I wonder to what degree it is actually a, a deficit in empathy that if it is actually that people are, are just not capable of really truly feeling things on behalf of other people. And, you know, and part of what makes this so interesting to me is I really believe that that as a society, we're seeing sort of an increase in just what I'd call empathy deficit, right? A, 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 an inability to really feel sorry on behalf of other people or to um, to feel sad along with other people for their plight. Um, you know, I think more often than not, I, well, that's probably not fair, but a lot of the times I feel as though people, what I hear people experiencing is this sense of, well, I'm glad that's not me or, um, you know, and so there's a recognition that other people have a hard time, but not a real genuine feeling of sadness for people. And I, I believe that empathy enhancement is probably a, a solution to the American rage in a lot of ways. Um, it's a solution to a lot of political problems. It's a solution to, um, to, to help people sort of recognize and feel and understand like, what, what must it be like to be diagnosed with something and not have adequate health care? What must it be like um, to lose your job and not be able to find another one? How scary must that be? Um, you know, that these are real, people are dealing with real serious, scary stuff. And, you know, and I think that, that, that there's a failure from other people to fully recognize what that must be like. Right. And this, this kind of makes me think about something you talk about in the end of your book about how, I mean, clearly people are angry, right? People are angry on behalf of others, but what can you do with that anger? And in there, you talk about using that to kind of fuel, I don't know, like writing letters to your representatives or I don't know, camp, you know, trying to, I don't know what I'm trying to say now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's about, it's about finding ways to use anger and channel it into like positive pro-social yeah. things. And, you know, it's, it's something we see a lot. It, it, this idea that, I mean, there are these powerful, valuable things you can do with your anger if you recognize that there's a problem that needs fixing, that you can use that anger as energy to try and, to try and solve that problem. Right. Um, I just love that concept because that's not something I had thought about using my anger for. I, I just use it fuel for, I don't know, working out or something like that. <laughs> but to use it for positive social change had not occurred to me. Right. And, you know, there's so many great examples throughout history of, of anger motivating social change, including we don't have to even go very far into history, right? We've seen plenty over the last four or five years of, of powerful, important social movements that were motivated um, by, by anger. And that's something that, again, came up. It came up when we talked to Cliff. Uh, it came up when we talked to Dr. Chris Smith. Um, it came up when we talked to Dr. Uh, Kasanov uh, as well, you know, about um, the, the way in which um, anger is sort of 
being, I guess, experienced more often now uh, and, and why and that is and how we see it in these social movements. I think it's also one other thing I wanted to say about this, and because this came up in the in the art episode as well, is you know people ask all the time like, so how do we improve empathy? And it's funny because this is one of those things that is um, I'm asked about a lot: emotional intelligence and how do we how do we help people become more aware of other people's uh, emotions and, and things like that. And you know, it's funny because one of the answers to that is is exposure to the arts. It's exposure to literature. It's, it's more people reading books, fiction books in particular. It's more people seeing movies. It's more people um, seeing plays, creating art. Those are all ways that people can connect with emotions in a healthy way and, and learn to better understand them. You actually learn a lot more doing those things than you do sitting in a class on emotional intelligence. Um, that That's going to teach you some theory and is going to teach you how these things work. But if you're actually trying to learn to do them, you, you actually more often than not get that through the arts. I think that kind of ties in with the social media piece too. Like now we have the arts at the tip of our fingers all the time and exposure to different populations, making art that you wouldn't normally be exposed to if you just stayed in your little bubble. Yep. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. I mean, the, the, the pandemic, notwithstanding, the arts have never been more accessible than they are right now. I mean, it, you know, and I say that because it was hard to, to get to the, the theater, but you remember early on in the pandemic, there were, you know, on weekends, they were showing Broadway shows that it, you know, recordings of Broadway shows on just regular TV. I mean, it was, or they were stream, streaming them online. I mean, we, the arts are as, are as accessible as ever right now. Wow, which is which is really important. There's one plus to the pandemic. Yes, there you go. So let's let's talk about imaginary headlines for a second because this yes. was so so fascinating. Um, I got a couple things to say about, it, but basically, um, to to sum up, they provided people imaginary headlines and asked people. How angry do each of these imaginary headlines make you? Now, the first thing I think we need to point out is that one of those imaginary headlines came true since they uh, since the survey was done. And so the the imaginary headline was Bill Cosby cleared of all charges. And um, so that's the first thing which is remarkable because we actually got to see how people reacted to it. Um, as compared to, to their actual survey. So the imaginary headline, Bill Cosby cleared of all charges, 34% of people were very angry about that. 29% were somewhat angry. Uh, 19 said not so angry and 15 said not angry at, at all. Um, so I, I'm trying to, you know, that what we don't have now, even though this has come true since then, what we, what we don't have is an indicator of what like what percentage of people were angry when this really happened. Um, I certainly saw lots of online rage for a short period of time, maybe just a few days. And then I've not heard or seen anything about it since. Does that feel similar to your experience or? Yes. People wanted to talk about it right away. And then it just kind of fizzled. If you wanted information, you had to 
go looking for it. It wasn't just in your face anymore. Yeah. And so we had this, it felt like this real intense spike of anger from some people about this that then did, like you said, fizzle right away, um, which I thought was, was really interesting. And, and probably, I mean, it, it probably matches what they said. I mean, basically what they found is that about just over half of people were, were a little bit angry if that were to happen. And that, that feels relatively close. Uh, to what actually happened. Um, okay, but but the the more interesting thing to me is there's a significant amount of anger over imaginary headlines related to unarmed black men being killed and mass shootings. Um, in fact, so those were two of the questions I asked, right? So latest school shooting leaves six dead, nine wounded was one of the imaginary headlines. And you see 71 saying very angry, another 20% saying somewhat angry. So it's like 91% essentially saying that they are really angry about this. If you look at cop shoots unarmed black men, uh, 42% very angry, 32% uh, somewhat angry, right? So, but uh, I don't know, 74% there, um, if my math is right. Yeah, my math is right. You are right. Yeah. So. I mean, if we think about what that means, though, because those are, yes, those are imaginary headlines, but they're also things that headlines we read all the time. I mean, those are omnipresent. I've seen essentially those headlines, you know, uh, relatively often over the last five years. And so what we have is this disconnect between how angry people are and their willingness to actually channel that anger into some sort of of solution. I, I find that very interesting because I remember when I, my first year in college, we watched um, Bowling for Columbine in my sociology class. And I remember my mind just being blown. I was already very upset about all the school shootings and stuff. I mean, I was just in high school. I had just read um, the column. There was a book written about Columbine too. So that was fresh Oh, you in read my that mind. in high school? Yeah. Um, that- we didn't read the whole thing. Parts of it were omitted, but um, a fair That's amount. That's one of my favorite books. Truly, Columbine is one of my favorite, favorite books. Anyways, I didn't mean to, to derail your story. No, but yeah. So it was definitely fresh in my mind. And after watching that documentary and finding out that the U.S. kills, we kill each other more than any country in the world. And it just, it made me want to do something. But I did not even know where to begin because essentially I, I felt like we still don't know the answer. So I wonder if maybe that's part of that disconnect is people don't, maybe they don't know how to help or what to do. I, I do think that's part of it. I, I think that there's a, a couple things going on, and some of it is actually revealed in in this uh, study or in this survey. Because later, one of the things they reveal is so they ask the question: Do you think recent killings of African American men by police are isolated incidents or part of a larger pattern in the in the police's treatment of African Americans? And more than half of people, just over half, fifty one percent, say they are isolated incidents. So in some ways, and this is something I've actually been really fascinated by lately and and talking a little bit about on TikTok is, you know, this idea that, well, no, it's not a systemic problem. It's a bad person problem, right? That these are isolated incidents. This is a bad cop. This is a, you know, or this is a bad kid who shot up the school uh, in that case, but not a systemic broader problem. Mm -hmm. And, and. It's, 
I mean, to me, that's not the case. To me, that's not true. And I think what you're describing, uh, well, we're, we're killing ourselves more than any other country, demonstrates that, right? I mean, the fact that it's happening more often here says there's something about our systems. But, but I can understand how you might get angry and then instead of wanting to solve the problem, want to punish the person, you know, that, that, that is, it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to try, there's no problem to fix. This is an isolated incident. And so let's just punish this specific person who did the bad thing. Right. Uh, Cause it would be easier to sentence one cop rather than, you know, deconstruct the entire police force and redo all of those processes and the whole system. How do you even do that? It's, it's much easier to just think of he's a bad person. And if we do something about him, then the problem's fixed. Right. And this speaks to, so there is a study that came out and I'll drop this in the show notes as well, but a study that came out just this last week or well, last month um, about um, people's belief in quote unquote pure evil and how it, it actually puts these, um, it, it, your belief in pure evil puts these blinders on your ability to um, to see things clearly and to, to like make some sort of good decisions about what should happen and so on. And so specifically what the study found is that people who believe in, and they, they just gave people a survey and they asked them about, um, uh, about their belief in evil and uh, with a survey of like 22 questions, and then they looked and, and said, um, how do you, actually, they looked specifically at, at shootings and said, how responsible is this person for the, for the shooting? Now, in the vignette that, about the shooter, they, they, there were two versions of him. One, the guy was like just a bad person. He, they just kind of put, had some evil qualities. The other one, he had a brain tumor that was influencing his behavior. And if you believed in pure evil, you didn't care which circumstance you saw. You just wanted the person to be punished. You wanted them to be sentenced to. And so it, it essentially you ignored some other factors, some other circumstances in favor of just, hey, we got to punish this person. Right. And, and part of what I think is really interesting about this is that, you know, if we if we start to break down what evil means and, and who, well, I guess who talks about evil a lot. We oftentimes see relatively conservative Christians who talk most about evil. And that's also a group that, that ends up talking a lot about punishment and, and wanting to um, like punish offenders, you know, that, that, and not necessarily recognizing some broader systemic problems. And so you can see how these things and these worldviews end up sort of being linked uh, in this way. That's a fascinating study. Yeah, it's really cool. Actually, and the author's done a few studies on this. So this was just the most recent iteration. They, they've done some other studies looking at your belief in evil and other, um, uh, other sort of like your attitudes towards sentencing guidelines and, and things like that. And essentially, if you think people are bad, then you want to throw the book at them. If you think systems are bad, you feel differently. You want to you fix that system. And so as we kind of finish up here, to me, it, it, speaks, it actually goes back to the TikTok question you asked, because it really does speak to the worldview and how that worldview 
informs your attitudes and informs your uh, beliefs um, and, uh, and informs not just those things, but what you, what you actively want to do, what you consider to be a solution is informed by that worldview. And I feel like that means that it is each individual's responsibility to expose themselves to other opinions or perspectives or views or going back to the arts too, because, you know, your schemas are yours. They're, they're only, you know, they're, what's the word? They're specific to you. Mm -hmm. So if you don't take time to think about other people's perspectives, you'll be looking for this very narrow worldview that doesn't necessarily consider the, uh, you know, possible struggles other people face. Yeah, that is very nice. Let's finish up there and um, come back in a moment and just talk about a few things to tie this all together. All right, Sammy, that brings us to the very end of our six-part series on anger. How are you feeling about it? I'm feeling pretty good. I can't believe it's already over because I feel like you approached me about this so early on in the year, and I don't know, it kind of flew by. Well, yeah, I feel the same way. I, I can't believe it's over as well, and it has been a ton of fun. So first of all, I should just say thank you for taking the time to do this um, and to have these conversations with me and to 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 listen to our guests and to reflect you know on I am it with me. Always honored to be on your podcast. <laughs> yes. Well that is why I asked because you're always I know you to be a very curious person who always wants to uh to talk about new cool stuff and I always enjoy talking about it with you. So that is cool. I have been thinking a lot about kind of a way to tie this all together as we finish things up. And so one of the first things I've been thinking about is how important it has been for me, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this too, but to have conversations and to kind of listen to non-psychologists as we talk about psychology-related concepts, like emotion in this case. And, you know, I was thinking about like, I haven't, this is the first time in a long time that I've talked, in this podcast, we, we talked to an artist, a philosopher, and a historian uh, about different perspectives on anger. And it's, a, it's an important reminder that psychologists are not the only people who have a stake in emotion and, and think about such things. And so I guess to me, it, it was really nice to be able to have those conversations and hear some other perspectives there. I absolutely love that. It's not something I, again, had thought about before is talking about psychology, people who aren't experts on psychology, but are um, experts on other things. And psychology is everywhere. So obviously, it's going to relate and to hear from someone whose specific interests are in history, and to hear about their perspective on psychology and how things have changed over time is just fascinating. It's not a way I've learned about psychology before. Yeah. And I think going forward, there's a lot of other groups I'd be interested in talking to. I mean, I, I can I can imagine um, wanting to talk to economists and think about how anger might actually influence markets. I want to talk to politicians or, or political scientists about how anger might influence um, public policy or, or voting behavior and things like that. So there's a ton out there that I'm really interested in. So maybe next summer we can... Uh, expand these conversations. Get back to it. Yeah. So um, 
Yeah, you know, another thing, and this this comes partially from the podcast, but partially just from TikTok, and that is, and I, I really do feel like people are dealing with some serious, serious stuff out there. And one of the things I, I've become more aware of this year, especially, like I said, in, in talking to people and communicating with people on TikTok is the number of people out there who are dealing with trauma, real serious trauma, and trying to find avenues for help. And, you know, it's really, it's something that I really have connected with. And I think, and I've said this before many times on TikTok, that I feel like I have a much, much better understanding of human beings because of my interactions there. And because of what people, the stories people tell me and the the messages they send to me and and share with me, I think I'm starting to understand people in a very different way Um, and just get a sense for what people are going through and how much work needs to be done, I think, to, to help people in that way. And then, you know, ultimately that brings me to the third thing, but the reason why I started this podcast, and by that, I mean, not, not just why we get mad, but the podcast five years ago is, is the psychology and stuff podcast is to think about the need to continue to bridge the gap between science and public, how much misinformation is out there, how much we need to fix that. And, you know, I hope, hope, hope that when people listen to this, that's what they get from it is that, that there's this, um, because I do, I think that the, one of the bad things psychologists have done and not just psychologists, but most academic disciplines, one of the bad things we have done is we have built too many barriers between us and the public. Um, and it's not just the, um, it, it's not just that we, we sort of lock the research up in libraries or make it hard to accept, uh, access. It's mm-hmm. the way we talk about it. We use words we shouldn't use. We, we talk about it in ways that are, you know, guaranteed uh, to leave some people out. And so this podcast, as well as, as some other things, really, I hope, are helping to provide some, some answers there. I feel like on a personal note, I feel like it, it has a little bit for me, even I learned stuff from, I just open up TikTok. I don't necessarily open it up to learn things. I open it up for entertainment, but I try to follow some accounts like yours so that I do get a little bit of intake of educational knowledge about psychology and what is new and things like that. And I feel like your TikTok account has helped me a lot with that. I mean, I learned about swearing and why we swear. That one (laughs) might've been my favorite. (laughs) Oh, I bet. I bet. Um, Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because I, I'm a believer that people, people go to TikTok for, this is not original to me. Other people have said this too, but people go to TikTok for, for three things, right? They go for inspiration, for entertainment and for education or, or one of those three things. And so, and I will be honest that a lot of the time I'm there, I'm there for entertainment as well, that I, I enjoy seeing people doing funny things. I enjoy people sharing their art and, and stuff like that. So I totally get, there's lots of uses uh, there's lots of reasons to be there. And I, I'm glad education is one of them, but I totally get that it's not the only one for people. All right. Well, Sammy, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Any final thoughts before we finish up? I just want to say thank you so much for having me. I love learning from you, even after actually having you as a teacher. <laughs> and I'm so happy you asked me to be on it. And I, I hope we get to do it again. I hope Good. we get to see more. Yes. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. 
that is all we've got. You can find me and ask questions at Anger Professor on social media, or you can visit my website, alltheragescience.com. Why We Get Mad is a special series from Psychology and Stuff and a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salek. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Bleese. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with Sammy Aljafizer. Keep being amazing.